This is the Breaking Labels Podcast, and I'm Rosanna Gill. Each episode, we'll discuss labels that have confined the stories of my guests at one point or another and their journeys to thrive beyond them. Some labels are external, and others we put on ourselves as limiting beliefs. But regardless of where the label comes from, we're here to break it because we were meant for so much more. So I'm very glad that you're on today and that you'll be talking with us. One of the things that struck me when you and I spoken previously is the overlap between what you do in architecture and, you know, our mutual interest in environmental justice and the role that plays. Um, so I definitely want to get into that. But before we get there, I need to know why architecture? Why did you get into that? How did that happen? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And it happens a little later for me than most people because I wanted to be a painter. And I think my mother was terrified about how I would ever support myself or earn a good living. Mm -hmm. And she was actually the one that connected the dots and had me shadow at an architecture firm for a few hours. And then I'm like, oh, I get it. Because from a very early age, I always felt space. And I would do things like climb on top of the refrigerator and notice how from that vantage point, the kitchen didn't feel like the room I was so familiar with every day or crawl oh. underneath the coffee table. And from that vantage point, the living room didn't feel like the familiar space. And I was always building, you know, like little houses and cardboard box enclosures and things like that but it just had never occurred to me and I think it comes from what's modeled for you so my family basically comes from a medical background my father was a doctor my mother was a technologist in a lab and other people were sort of working class in factories and things like that. So I had never had modeled to me a creative career and certainly not architecture. So mm -hmm. I didn't know I wanted to do it, but that was how I got there. And then when I started studying at Carnegie Mellon, one of the things I loved about the way that they taught architecture was they put it in the context of social and cultural issues, environmental issues, psychological issues. One of my favorite classes was called the psychology of habitation. And I minored in architecture history and organizational behavior because my mind was just exploding with this idea that we're making environments and environments affect people. And we can influence their behavior for good or bad. So we need to really understand this kit of parts at our disposal and the way that we can put them together to create certain effects that people will experience. I'm so blown away. Just, okay, from that, okay. Even going back to you as a child and the, the vantage point perspective, like I, that's so true. Depending on where you are in a room, it completely transforms everything. And I don't know that I would have ever put that with an interest in architecture. But what is architecture other than a variety of vantage points, right? I and creating it from a holistic standpoint. Ouch. Um, and then 
the the environmental and social part of it this is part of what blew my mind the other day because you're right you're creating environments but okay for somebody like me who has never ever taken a class in architecture and before today had never even thought about like you said the 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 role of the different vantage points what are the correlations between architecture and behavior psychology any of that how does that all tie in Oh, I love that you asked me this question because I geek out on this stuff. So what I have tended to do is to read a ton of stuff on neuroscience, sociology, psychology, and it just fascinates me the way that our senses perceive the inputs we get, right? Because the inputs we get and an order of magnitude are so much greater than what we're ever consciously aware of. And our subconscious mind, on the other hand, is filtering all of it. And it's selecting what we choose to react to based on the inputs we're giving it. So I have studied very deeply something called salutogenesis, which is about health generating environments. And This is a coined term by a medical sociologist named Aaron Antonofsky when he observed that people with the same medical conditions could have different outcomes. And from what he could see, there was no difference. So why was someone getting better when someone else wasn't? And what he concluded was that it was the resources they have to cope. So if you think about this like a video game, right, where Mm -hmm. you have a life And there's certain things you can do that give you life points. And then there's other things that happen to you that take your life points away. If you don't have very many life points and something happens to you, you die, right? Yes. On the other hand, if you have a lot of life points, you can take the hits, right? And so he worked with a theory called sense of coherence, which was really about studying how meaningful and manageable and comprehensible the environment was to people. But as I've studied salutogenesis as an architect, I realized there's more than just sense of coherence. There's also biophilia, which is about our ability to resonate with the natural world. Okay. There's something called self-empowerment, which is another psychosocial theory about people feeling like they can, right? And if we feel like we can, we're gonna be a lot more resilient than if we go into something believing we're not gonna be successful. Um, There's also something called prospect and refuge, which is very much about feeling safe in the space you're in and being able to survey your environment from a vantage point and know what's gonna be coming up so you can anticipate it and react to it. And then there is finally something called relaxation response, which is about being able to calm yourself down. So a Mm. lot of my work, because I'm a healthcare architect, deals with what can we do to alleviate stress for patients, families, and staff so that we can have the best possible outcomes and the best possible healing. So this kind of goes back to from when I said space feels like something to actually now having the tools to apply science to know 
yeah, this will make a difference. And this, we don't want to do this. This is a bad thing to do. Can you give me an example of what a bad thing would be to do or something that would not be healing? Sure, sure. So a lot of times, especially in modern architecture, we want very clean lines and sometimes sharp angles and no color. Well, again, this isn't a conscious thing. This is subconscious. Um, Our brain is always looking for that connection to the natural world. Well, when we're in a achromatic space, meaning it has no color at all, our brain is in this loop and it keeps looking to find the connection, which it can't find, which is exhausting and depleting. When we see something like a sharp angle, instinctively that tells our amygdala, the most primitive part of our brain, that it's dangerous. Well, that's what I think of when I think of healthcare environments. Like I think of a doctor's office being all white, very sterile, and a lot of just like uncomforting objects, like a lot of sharp angles, a lot of sharp objects. (laughs) Right, right. And that is why people have so many negative associations, right? I mean, when we talk about social justice, getting people to actually see a doctor is a huge hurdle. And I love to tell this story, Kaiser Permanente, which is a insurance plan and a health system, did this experiment in a neighborhood in California that was low income. And they thought the barrier to access was cost. Mm -hmm. And that if they could give people free healthcare, that people would start having better health outcomes. Didn't make a lick of difference. So they started to dig into it deeper. And what they found was that people had an adversity to going to the clinic. Mm-hmm. And what they actually had to do to solve the problem was to bring the healthcare to them. So using more like mobile and pop-up kind of solutions. And then they could actually get people to be seen and to, you know, be able to get the care they needed. But oh it, the barrier was that adversity that I don't want to go there. It's scary. And I don't feel comfortable in this space. So I I guess I'll feel better in a few days. I, I'll just wait this out. Which, and it not it funny that that's you, how it used to be doctors used to make home visits. Exactly. Exactly. So at what point when big pharma, big medicine started to happen, and not even just big medicine, like hospitals had to be created to take in the amount of people that needed to come and the couldn't the doctor couldn't just make house calls. Did that end up having an a adverse effect on the amount of people who are willing to actually see the doctor now? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because Congress passed something called the Hill-Burton Act back mm-hmm. in the 40s, 1940s, and it really opened the door for mass construction of hospital buildings. And that's why the model was so clinical, was they wanted to convince people that they were going to get a higher standard of care than just having the doctor make the house call. So they thought they were building trust with this very, very clinical (laughs) message to people And it probably worked at the time, but over time, as it's gotten kind of stale, it's just an uncomfortable environment. And we think about those different aspects of wellness. Well, self-empowerment, 
how empowered do you feel in most healthcare settings? You feel like you're the specimen to be acted upon. And there's so much hierarchy that's built into the environment that makes you feel like, well, I can't turn this light out that's shining in my eyes. And if I walk up to the nurse station with the really high transaction counter, I'm bothering somebody and I have to ask permission to Mm -hmm. even get their attention. So that's a lot of what our work focuses on is how can we not only create an environment that feels more comfortable and welcoming and has associations with environments people feel more comfortable in, But how can we dissolve some of these hierarchies that don't let people be partners in their own care and advocates for themselves? Is it, this is going to sound ridiculous probably to you, but I mean, is it as simple as painting the rooms not white or, I mean, how, how do you do that with something that's already in existence, right? Like you have a hospital in an area that's, let's say they don't have the funds to build a new hospital and start from school from ground one or ground zero, how could you go in and retroactively make it more welcoming and make it feel safer? Sure. Well, there's a few things. Yes. Colors and finishes can go a long way, but it's also how accessible the staff feels. So I would say, what can we do with some of those high counters? What can we do to push the staff out to where the patients and families are What can we do to make families feel welcome in the room and make the patient feel more empowered to move around the space, not just feel like they must stay in their room? Mm -hmm. Um, A great example in outpatient, and we're all familiar with this because we've all gone to the doctor. They make you sit on this exam table, right? And your legs are dangling over the edge and it's not very comfortable. And the doctor's standing up talking to you and don't feel very much like you can speak up or challenge anything, but you also feel so stressed out. You probably are missing half of the instructions you're getting about what to do next because your brain is just not focused on that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we've done clinics where we put just a really small table and two chairs in the exam room. And it is a game changer because now you've leveled the playing field. Now it's two people sitting across from one another having a conversation. And we've worked really hard in the design of our exam rooms to try to minimize the table because very little of what you do actually requires you needing to be on that table, Mm -hmm. but emphasizes what we call that consultation zone where people feel more comfortable and can have a better, higher level of conversation with their health provider. So even just that, that would be a simple thing like any hospital could do and and would probably see a a better response from patients. Mm -hmm. Now, have you noticed any correlation between, you know, in certain areas, like let's say a lower socioeconomic area, um, uh, a, a poor area, in how the hospitals are designed and, and what they look like versus in a higher income area and, and what the design is. Sure. So I, 
that's a little tougher to say. Uh, definitely, there is an element of consumerism that happens mm -hmm. in healthcare, and people who are middle class or higher are more likely to feel like they do have choices. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can tell the story of one individual who was very low income and had been going to the county clinics. And mm -hmm. In the county clinics, they're understaffed and these people are doing the best they can, but he had a lot of pain issues. Well, he was getting inconsistent provider appointments, a lot of time between appointments. And when they finally did refer him for an MRI, he waited for weeks. So this poor guy is suffering and he's not really getting the attention he deserves. Now he switched to a different health system. And all of a sudden he can see his doctor within a few days. All of a sudden, when they refer him to a specialist, it's within two or three weeks, not two or three months, mm -hmm. but he didn't know he could demand better. He right. thought he mm -hmm. had to go to the free clinic and that he was lucky to get anything. He didn't know how to be his own advocate. Or that he could do something as simple as say, I'm going to change doctors. I don't oh, want yeah. this kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, you and I had talked about that where I, I can't remember where I read it, but I, I think it was an article, um, but how somebody was talking about how they were raising their child to be able to ask questions or to feel confident to ask questions of their own doctor. And I even remember when I was reading it, kind of this, this instinctive or knee jerk reaction of you can't do that. Because I was raised, you know, the doctor's the authority. They've gone through all this ed education. Of course, they know what's best. And and I'd never ask questions. Even when they say, do you have questions? My response was always, no. Even if I did, because I didn't feel like I really could. Because they're the authority and you just have to, you know. And that's, it's. it was interesting because the, the person who was writing the article was saying, you know, there's so many people who don't get a second opinion because they don't feel like they can or because they're scared or, I mean, I'll be honest, there have been times where I didn't get a second opinion just because it seemed like it'd be too much of a hassle. It's like, well, great. So now I got to call someone else, go through a rigmarole of getting an appointment. That's not even going to happen for a few weeks. And I got to take time off from work. And it's, it's not as simple as, you know, just getting a second opinion. And, and, and add, I mean, it is in theory, right? You just advocate for yourself and get the answers you need, but I think it feels so overwhelming at times. Right. Right. And the more stress you have and the more instability you have in your life, the more overwhelmed you are by that. So yes, what a lot of people don't realize we know when we're stressed out, our adrenal glands kick in and we're running on adrenaline and cortisol. But what we don't know a lot about is what happens when that is long term in our bodies. And it actually when your body is in that fight or flight response, it does things like lower your cognitive thinking. It lowers your immune response because you, your body thinks it's under a physical threat that it needs to be able to run away from and take physical action. And so it is sending every resource to that not to higher level brain functions and not to things like an immune system, which won't matter if you're dead. So when you're under stress long-term, however, think about the diminishment of your physical and mental capacities. And we actually see that stress 
is the root of inflammation, which is then the root of so many chronic diseases. So when somebody has a lot of instability on, in their life and has that chronic stress, it just puts them at a disadvantage for everything. And much like we talked about the video game analogy, they're always running on very few life points. So it doesn't take much to take them out of the game. And um, there are these identified social determinants to health. And what studies have shown is that health is only fractionally related to genetics and mostly related to your environment, your social network and your lifestyle. And these social determinants to health are things like, what level of education do you have? Do you live in a food desert? Mm -hmm. How secure is your living situation? How stable is your social network? What access do you have to reliable transportation? Are you employed? So you can start to see how when you aren't doing very well on multiple of these social determinants, your stress level and your ability to just survive the day become your focus. And going to the doctor because you've had a cough for four weeks, not really top of your list. No. So as you were saying this, I had an aha moment with somebody I used to work with who was in, they were an independent contractor. And that means basically, I mean, if they didn't generate a certain amount of production, they didn't have money for their bills. And they were constantly, constantly in the stress of how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my bills? And they also regularly got sick. And it got to a point where we just knew every few months they were going to be out of pocket because they were sick. And it never, ever, ever occurred to me that that like the routine sickness could be coming from the fact that they were constantly under the duress of how am I going to pay my bills? And also that their self-care was minimal. Like mm-hmm. would always say like, I'm going to go to the doctor, but I just don't have time. I don't just have to, I just don't have time. And it's like, they, they didn't because they felt that panic and they were constantly in that fight or flight mode, i.e. we're constantly getting sick. But right. I just, I never put two and two together ever. Yeah. And and when you think about social justice issues, a lot of times what you find is people don't know how to be an advocate for themselves. So they didn't talk to the utility company and negotiate a payment plan. So their utilities got turned off. Well, why didn't they do that? Because they they were under so much stress that they couldn't cope with something like making a phone call and having to navigate perhaps multiple people till they finally found the right person. Just the thought of doing that was so overwhelming and exhausting. They didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And now they're suffering the consequence. So now their stress levels are that much higher. I did that all the time. Like there were so many things when I was starting out my career and it was like, I mean, I might have 30 bucks for food and for gas for a week. There were so many things that I just avoided because I didn't know, I didn't have the capacity to figure out. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know who to ask to do this. So I'm just going to keep putting it off and hope to God that it figures itself out. 
so many things. And I mean, like didn't go to the dentist for years because one, how am I going to afford to take the time off from work? Um, how am I going to pay for anything? Even if they tell me that there's something wrong, I don't have the money for that. And I remember when I finally went to the dentist, it was, it was awful. Um, like they told me I had like $2,000 worth of work that needed to be done. And I just laughed. And I was like, I don't have $200. Like, I'm not even entirely sure how I'm going to pay for this visit, let alone all that. And, you know, he basically proceeded to berate me and belittle me because I didn't have the money and tell me like all these worst case scenarios of like, well, if you don't do this and this and this, and I just looked at him, I said, are you going to pay for it? And he got real quiet. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, sir, but I I do not have the money. So thank you. But I guess I'm just going to walk away with this information. And then fast forward a few years, uh, when I was in Memphis, I actually finally did have some disposable income. So I went to the dentist and one found out half the stuff they had told me was wrong, was not wrong. It was wow. fine. And all of a sudden, somehow things magically fixed themselves. And it was, I still had work that needed to be done, but it was literally probably half of what I've been told. And I wanted so badly to call that other dentist and say, you like, you're a jerk. Not only did you belittle me, not only did you make me feel like poo, but you lied. You lied about what needed to be done because you knew I didn't have the education to say otherwise. Right. Right. And I just, I hate to think of how many people go through that in our, in our country and, you know, think that God knows, get what kind of, however many loans that are high interest and predatory to pay for something because somebody in an authority, a, a position of authority told them they had to, and they don't think to question. I never went and got a second opinion. I remember actually a friend telling me, oh, you should go somewhere else. And remember thinking, well, how am I going to pay for that copay? Yeah. Yeah. Now you just bought yourself another appointment. Yeah. Right. Like and more time off of work. Yes. And it was like, okay, well, this is just not going to happen. So mm-hmm. I hope my, feet, my teeth don't fall out. And it wasn't that dramatic, but that's how you feel. And you feel so frustrated. I, I, I can't imagine it'd be any different. Any major decision, you know, if, especially if you're coming from, again, a place of this is not my expertise. I think I just have to take whatever they say at face value. Right. And, you know, honestly, when you talk about it goes beyond healthcare to like really any aspect of the environment, most people have no clue how much their environment affects them. And they go to work in harsh fluorescent lighting in this cubicle farm and they wonder why they feel sick so often in a building that's recirculating everybody's germs and there's no natural light. And they don't realize that they could work in a better space where they could be more productive and they could have better health and they could do better work. You know, I always say that salutogenesis is about being your best self in Mm -hmm. the space. And if you think about your, where you live, right? Where Mm -hmm. you have the most amount of control what do you do? You make a space that meets your needs to the best you can. Right. However, we go to work and we're in an environment that may be the opposite of healthy for us. Or we go, we send our kids to schools Mm. and what kinds of environments are they in? Are they in environments that are promoting learning? Are they in environments that are promoting distraction or illness? And there have been studies on the impact of natural light on test scores. Really? So we know, 
we know these things matter. We know they make a difference. I know that though. Come and on. that is why I'm always, my soapbox is always, we have to be advocates. We have to do good design because it matters. And we know it matters. So how can we not do it? Right? How can how can we say we don't care? Or just because our client may not have a big budget that we just default to the lowest common denominator? Or we say, how can we? What can we do? Maybe it's less of a project, but it's a better project. And people need to advocate more as well. Like mm -hmm. usually, um, there's a lot of what I call defensive design coming up. So for example, you live in a neighborhood and somebody breaks into a few of the houses. What does everybody start doing? Oh, they put bars on their windows or they get those big lights, that motion sensor, or they put a fence around the property. And rather than saying, how could we activate this neighborhood to encourage eyes on the street, to encourage people to know their neighbors, to make it more walkable so people are outside. And now if somebody doesn't belong in the neighborhood, everybody who does belong in the neighborhood knows it. Mm -hmm. And they're more likely to say, oh, hey, what are you doing? Who are you? And that's gonna deter crime far more than all of these defensive things that subconsciously, remember we're getting all these inputs what does it say when you pull up to your house and have to go through all these barricades? You're telling yourself every time, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe. But what if it's in a situation where it is from within your neighborhood? Like, and I, I'm thinking of situations like with gangs, right? Where in, in some of these, in some neighborhoods where people won't say if something's wrong because they know if they say something, it could be detrimental to them, right? Like something could happen. And that may not always be the case in gangs. I, that might actually be an incorrect correlation. Um, but it, I, I'm thinking of, of a podcast I listened to basically where there was a, an issue that happened and none of the people in the neighborhood would give the police any information because they knew if they were the rat that that could mean they, they died or maybe just got hurt. Like how would... How do you change that with art? I mean, I don't know that you can change that with architecture, but like, how does that even begin to change? Is it from the inside out? Well, I think you do have to be brave. And that's that's an issue that's beyond my expertise right. in terms of how Both to, of what structures you can put in place to help people feel more comfortable speaking out. But you definitely need to create more of that culture. Right. But is a what can the environment communicate? Well, the remember, bad behavior always happens in the shadows where people think they won't get caught. Mm -hmm. So when we can try to environmentally remove the shadows and create more socializing, create more awareness of one another, if we all feel like we're a community, and I, I've seen clusters of housing that are no more than eight units, because that's a number where you can know the other seven neighbors. Oh. Well, now, if I know you, I'm invested in what you're doing. So even if I'm a drug dealer, 
I don't want to bring that back to all these nice people I know. And so I'm not going to necessarily want to deal drugs out of my house because right. I care about my neighbors. And so there is a little bit more of that accountability on the part of everybody when they know one another. And some of that is the power of design. You know, if you have a high rise building and everybody's behind closed doors and there's no activity on the street, the chances of you knowing your neighbors are not very high. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when it's a lower density and it's clustered and the street itself is very walkable and people are outside, kids are riding bikes, people are walking their dogs, it, it feels safer and it feels like a community. And I think if you look at the history of urban design, it is also a history of social decay. Because oh. what happened in cities as suburbs flourished and higher and middle income people moved out is the lower income people were left with less and less resources. Mm -hmm. And therefore, their ability to form these communities and really combat crime started to go away. And the solutions to that were to create more barriers and more isolation, which you saw a lot in the 60s and the 70s and even into the 80s and how that wasn't helping, right? Mm -mm. It was only making the problem worse and worse and worse. And as people have started to be more interested in living in cities, we have a different problem, which is gentrification. And mm -hmm. we're not allowing these same neighborhoods to be affordable any longer for people. And now where are they going to be displaced? And what mm -hmm. is that going to do? So again, design's role is how can we create a diverse and integrated community so that just like I couldn't see to be an architect because I didn't have it modeled for me, how do we expect anyone to aspire to a better life when they can't see that modeled for them? So when we can mm -hmm. create those more diverse communities, we give everybody the opportunity to help one another and to see opportunities that they might not have been able to see or make connections they might not have been able to make before. And then the community if you go back to what cities used to be like when they were more vibrant, there's a mix of things, right? Because for every service in that community, you need somebody to work there. Mm -hmm. You're going to have people that live above the businesses, and then you're going to have people that live in the townhome, you know, so there's always going to be that mix. But the important thing is that it is there and that mm -hmm. there are a lot of choices for everyone involved and that those choices are very transparent and visible so that everybody knows what's going on. So then when something starts to happen that doesn't belong, people are going to be more likely to say something. And they're also more invested in the community so they care more. So they're mm -hmm. less intimidated and more feeling that it matters to me and it matters to, you know, the elderly lady that lives next door to me. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not, I may not say something for me, but I'm going to say something for her. I'm not going to let this go on. Or I'm more likely to talk to my neighbors and together 
multiple people are going to come forward. And now it's harder to feel threatened because it's not one voice, the lone voice that you can pick me off. It's a group of us united with the same advocacy. And that's a little bit harder to tear down. Yes. Could you give me an example of like uh, somebody who's listening and they're thinking, okay, this is fine, well, and good, but where, how do they start in their personal life? Let's say they are somebody who works in a cubicle, you know, or even right now, if they can't go into that cubicle because of COVID and they're working from home, but they don't have an ideal home situation, home office setup, because again, they never had a reason to, what are things that they could do or set up? in their space that would allow it to be like more conducive for creativity, more conducive for happiness, any of that? Sure. Well, the first thing that you want to always try to do is put yourself in that power position. So we talked about prospect and refuge, right? So is your back toward a wall? Mm -hmm. And if it can't be like, say you work in an open office, you can always get a little convex mirror that you can stick on your computer screen. So you never have to worry about what's behind you. So that's helping to put your mind at ease. What is your view? You know, in a home office, a lot of people will put their desk facing a wall because Mm -hmm. they think that saves space. But even if you're at home and you live alone, you're still subconsciously not feeling safe when your back is exposed. So I always tell people, turn your desk and make sure you can see the door Mm -hmm. or what's going on in front of you. Make sure you can see outside. And if Mm -hmm. you can't see outside, like maybe you do work in a cubicle where it's windowless, an image of nature still will have benefits. So put images of nature, bring in natural materials. Like if you can have wood or cotton fabrics or Things like a plant on your desk or a little water feature, all of that helps to lessen your stress and enhance your well-being. Um, having something like a guest chair. I mean, I'm, I'm in my home office right now and I have a chair on the other side of my desk, even though I don't have meetings here or see visitors. But it's a way of saying I'm open oh. to collaborate with others. And it's a subconscious cue. I call them environmental anchors. But When we have these things, we're reinforcing certain messages. Having, you know, projects that you're working on prominently in front of you or things you're proud of accomplishments where you can see them. I also advise people to write aspirational notes about what they want Mm -hmm. and make sure that they can see those. And then my final advice in terms of energizing your workspace is getting rid of what I call the naggers in a space, the things that deplete and drain you. So clutter, you know, and who doesn't need to clean their desk, right? Mm -hmm. Because when, again, subconsciously, you're taking in all this stuff and it's exhausting your brain. So you sit down at your desk and You're trying to look at your computer screen, but your subconscious mind sees the piles of paper that might kill you if they fell over. (laughs) You can't find something. Also, unfinished projects, because you know you need to do them. Mm -hmm. And so knowing you need to do them 
you're constantly running that loop in your head. And finally, things that need to be repaired or replaced. So if your oh. desk lamp broke, don't sit down every day and put up with that or have brought the lamp from the living room in that doesn't belong here and use it. Because what is your brain thinking all day long? I got to deal with that desk lamp, got to deal with that desk lamp. And you're not dealing with the desk lamp. So if you, if you can fix it, fix it. If you can't get rid of it, but surround yourself with things that nourish you, not things that deplete you. And even though you might think, well, I can't go out and buy a new desk or I can't do this or I can't do that. There are definitely small moves you can make that go a long way. Mm-hmm. The clutter thing is interesting because I've always, always had a tendency to clutter and, and we'll get so stressed and I'll just keep putting it off because I feel like it's going to take me forever to, to sort through everything. And then the pile grows and it, it is the same. Like, I feel like this angst to the point where at times I've just, I don't work at my desk because it doesn't feel relaxing. And it never was a conscious thing on my part, but I'd always find myself going to the living room or somewhere where it wasn't cluttered to work. And I'm just thinking, oh, I'd rather be in there. Not thinking, oh, it's because there's a ton of clutter on your desk. That's why you don't want to work there because you're looking at this pile of stuff that you have all this anxiety about, but like what would get me. So what I'm thinking and what I want to ask is like, I used to always, because I traveled so much, my mail would, would pile up and I would have it piled on my desk. And I wonder if, would it have helped to like, I always would look at it usually like at a certain point in the month or a certain point every couple of weeks, which maybe I should have done that more sooner, but would it help to like put it in a box or something where it's not staring at me all the time? Like, yes. So, to be sure, paper breathes. I am convinced of this. <laughs> <laughs> but I think putting it in a way that you can look at the box and you can say, I know I'm going to look at that on whatever date, whatever system you have, whether it's at the end of every day, the beginning of every day on a weekend, you know, whatever it is, it does give it a container so that one, it's not a pile anymore. It's Mm -hmm. one one thing, you know, there's a thing called cognitive chunking. And if you have a bunch of little details, that's sensory overload. But if the details kind of coalesce into a chunk of things that your brain can create a group for, then your brain only thinks about the group, not all the little details. So putting all the mail in one box or one container gives it a chunk. So now you're not looking at many different to do things. You're looking at one box and you have also created that schedule for when the things in that box are going to be handled. Is this why, and I'm always drawn to like on Instagram is like organization accounts. And I always thought it was so interesting how they would have, let's say in your bathroom sink or or underneath bathroom sink, where you have just a ton of beauty products and they would take all those beauty products, but they would put them in containers. And I'm like, well, why it's all the same products and they're still out, but why does it look so much more organized now that it's in a box, but it's that chunking. Yes. Yeah. And you know, in oh. architecture, we use that a lot with what we call wayfinding. So let's say you're in a large building, like a university building or a hospital or a school. It's easier to say, I go to the second green door 
than it is to say, I need to go to room 2023. Mm-hmm. So when you can, whether it's through the way the space is designed or through the way you organize things in your home, it's the same concept. You are creating an abstract of one thing out of many things. And, you know, presumably those things have a relationship to one another. It's why they're part of that group, but it's easier and less stressful because now your brain just looks at maybe four groups of beauty products instead of 20 individual items. Oh my God. That makes so much sense. I have three different things in my head right now that I really want to go organize. <laughs> I'm like, I need to go to the or- the container store. I need to buy, I need to buy little containers for all my beauty products, all my hair products, because I have so many that it's just, they just kind of take over everything. Oh my God. I really want to organize my hair products now. Wow. <laughs> but it never made sense to me. I'm like, gosh, why am I so drawn to this? But why, how can that one little thing make such a difference? So it would be the same in your workspace. What about, okay, so this is the other thing I wanted to ask is, you know, what if we have like teachers here, right? And what's amazed me is, you know, growing up in South Carolina, I remember my elementary schools having a lot of light, like all of them had a lot of natural light. And then I remember in high school is where like only certain areas had natural light which now that we're talking about this, it's bananas to me that it's like, oh, why are we so surprised that kids have such a hard time focusing in high school or, or at that age when ADHD, sometimes it becomes more noticeable when a bunch of them are in rooms with no natural light all day long and they're in fl- fluorescent lighting. What would be something, let's say it's a teacher in the inner part of the school that has no access to, to lights or um, excuse me, windows, I should say, what is something they could do in their classroom that would make it a better environment for themselves and the students? Number one, most classrooms I go into have way too much stuff on the walls. It's visual chaos. And I realize that teachers are trying to put up prompts Mm -hmm. and learning tools, but I would really advise you pare it down. Really? Try to have no more than three areas of focus in the room. Again, just to help it to feel more calming. Um, I also would suggest that you bring in plants. There are many plants that love fluorescent light and do really well. So it's okay that there's not windows. I also would suggest that you go out and get some posters that have some beautiful views of nature and try to get ones that have foreground, middle ground, background, like a certain visual complexity and depth to them because, well, a student may be listening to you talk about something, they're staring off, right? Let's give them a focal point that's actually helping them retain what you're teaching instead of a focal point that's distracting to them or a focal point that's subconsciously making their brain cycle, looking to find the natural element. So that is another thing that can really make a difference. Um, One of the things we tried, my daughter has ADHD and she particularly struggles with executive function, which is not so great in today's world where a lot is project-based and you have Mm -hmm. to organize it. And one of the things that we tried was having a, again, a picture of nature on the desk. So right there in her line of sight is a natural image that's helping to nourish her. 
Um, another thing is relaxation response. So what can we do in the classroom? Like, can we let the kids maybe walk around? Like you could put a maze on the floor in tape and maybe part of the class is more of a settling in kind of a meditation that takes a minute or two and they walk the maze or something like that. And I realize this is out of the box. It's not what you typically encounter in a classroom, but it helps relax the mind, which makes you more able to pay attention and to retain the knowledge that's coming in. Okay, so they would do the maze at like the beginning of class Mm -hmm. to kind of ready them. Wow. Okay. I'm not sure I completely understand. Why does the maze help them? So let's like, it's like a zigzag thing around the classroom and they walk it. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, it, it occupies just enough of your conscious mind that your brain can settle down. So it's sort of why, like, I like to play connect for video games, right? It, it's not because there's any real value in matching candies. It's the fact that I'm actually thinking about my day or complex problems or working through philosophical issues while I'm playing this stupid game. And this game facilitates me thinking because it's occupying just enough of my conscious mind to play it that I can kind of focus better on the things I really want to think about. Whereas if I were to try to just say with no positive distractions, I want to just, you know, think about how I want to write this white paper, I'd feel overwhelmed and my mm -hmm. brain would start shooting in a million different directions and I would look for opportunities to be distracted and I wouldn't get it done versus giving your brain something that's very low stakes to focus on helps eliminate the distractions. A lot of schools are giving kids fidget toys for that reason too, which is another thing that helps because it's a positive distraction. Wow. Okay, you blew my mind a little bit on that one because I remember when um, Candy Crush, wasn't that, that's a really popular mm -hmm. one? When that became really big and everybody's like, oh, and I was one of the ones that was like, oh no, I'm not going to start that because I, I'm going to waste so many so much time. But I never would have thought of it as something as, the way you described it, that's not a time waster. That's actually helping you process, mm -hmm. which also makes me reconsider like the people I know who played it so much. Actually, I'm thinking of one in particular who is an introvert and needs to process things in their own time. And I never would have thought of that being something that was actually a tool for her to process. So yeah. to somebody not understanding me thinking, oh, it's just a time waster. You're just addicted to a silly game. No, she's actually processing the day, processing how to respond, maybe trying to kind of figure out things in the midst of playing Candy Crush. Right. And it creates a ritual. And there's all kinds of oh great studies out there on the value of rituals. And the more creative work you either do or are trying to do, the more unpredictability there is. Because by its very definition, you don't know what will happen if you're doing something creative. If you know what will happen, it's not a creative endeavor. So 
I'm dealing with all this unpredictability. How do I let my mind get into a flow state as opposed to an overwhelmed state? I do that by having rituals. And if you look at the life habits of a lot of famous creative people, you'll find they were rigid in the way their day was structured because they recognized the importance of that ritual. They didn't have Candy Crush, so... <laughs> They had to do it with a very strict ritual. But the the big thing is that it's about forming habits. And just like I was saying, our brains are these great supercomputers and they're processing and filtering information based on what we're asking them to tell us, much like a search engine on a computer would do. Our brains to help us get through the day, form habits. So these are neural pathways. And it's kind of like if you think of how rivers form from rainwater running and eroding a path. Well, if I want to change a habit, just like if I want to reroute a river, that takes a lot of energy and a lot of work. So what can we do to make it easier to form a new habit? Well, we can start to put different rituals in place and that ritual will eventually lead to the new habit. Can you and, give me an you example know, of like a new ritual you could introduce? Do you have like a personal one that you could use? Or if I give you a situation and say, I want to create a new habit, could you give me an idea of what a ritual I could create would be? Sure. Why don't we do it that way? Okay. So, okay. I'm going to go off of one that is like my constant is when I'm stressed, I tend to, I munch, I mindlessly eat. That's my ritual. And I get very focused. Like when I, especially when I was in outside sales and, and like, if it was a really stressful day, I'd be very food focused on when my next meal was because it gave me something to focus on other than the rejection, the, the next, all of that. So I was very, very food oriented throughout my day. What is something, a ritual I could create so that next time I'm stressed or there's a big project looming over me at work, my first response isn't to go munch on something. Well, so first you'd want to say why. And I'm just going to guess here that you associate food with feeling comfortable, feeling mm -hmm. safe, feeling mm -hmm. nurtured. Yep. And what you experienced during the day completely depleted you of all three of those things. So you needed to fill up the tank. And so that was the easy default thing. Your subconscious mind was like, have those mashed potatoes and gravy. Doesn't mm -hmm. that feel good? So if we want to change it, we have to say, okay, the reason I want the comfort and the nurturing is because I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. So what else makes me feel nurtured? Is it taking a bath? Mm -hmm. Is it doing my nails? Is it taking a yoga class? You know, mm -hmm. what, what would it be? And there's completely different answers that are right for different people. So I don't want it to be a one size fits all, but it has to be something that you would look forward to and feel good about, even if it's binge watching trashy TV. Mm -hmm. If that makes you feel good and it's something you can look forward to, now you can start to say when you start to gravitate towards the food, you have to be conscious, right? That's right. the first step is to say, mm -hmm. I want to change then. Oops, I'm catching 
my brain defaulting to where its habits are and I'm choosing a different thing. And now you are starting to say, well, how do I put that into place? So whatever you choose has to be something that is accessible to you to do mm-hmm. on the same regular basis as the other choice you would make. And you have to make it easy for yourself. And you have to recognize that you're going to have to put the effort into it being a conscious choice for a few months until that new habit forms. But once that new habit forms, that will be your default setting. And now it will be easy. It's so funny is so the only reason I never gained as much weight as I could have is because my other thing, my other outlet during the really stressful times was working out. So even though I'd be munching throughout the day, my like person, like my therapy, a lot of days was my workout first thing in the morning, or sometimes I would do a two a day because I needed to have that time in the evening. I mean, didn't mean that I didn't still gain weight, but I would, it was a lot less than it could have been because that was my other outlet. But now, and and it's been hard the last few weeks because it gets dark so early. I'm slammed during the day, so I can't go for a walk. I don't want to go to my gym because I have a membership at a bro gym, which I know is not that clean. So I don't particularly want to go and wear a mask (laughs) during COVID. And it's been really hard. And I've found myself munching again. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I know better. But it's because I hadn't replaced it. And I'd lost the working out or the walking or whatever it was I would normally do during the summer months when it's light out longer. So now I just, but you know what? Reading has been really relaxing. So maybe I need to just schedule times during the day where I journal or I read to give my mind that outlet as opposed to snacking, which never really actually makes me feel that better long-term. No, of course it doesn't. But in the short term, that's what your brain's going to because it has this unmet need. So Mm -hmm. replace, meet the need with a replacement and then the habit can change. But I think it's really important to be conscious of our habits because so many of us do so many things throughout the day that we don't even know we're doing. And this is one of the things as an architect, when I work with clients, I have to try to really surface is what do you do and why do you do it? Mm. Because I'll get an answer like, we register the patient. Well, that's actually 20 different steps. And part of the 20 steps is you walk to the back of the clinic to get something from a printer. And I can then start to say, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe it would be better if the printer was next to you or this or that. But I can't discover their pain points until we can break through all the habits and all the shortcuts of how they do things. But then the next layer that really is important is they have to be committed to what they want to do differently. And Mm -hmm. if they're not, they will not put the effort in to change. So they could have a brand new space that supports a way of working that no one is doing because they're all still working the old way. And so now the new space isn't helping them. It's creating friction because they don't want to put the effort into changing their processes because it's hard 
Change yeah. is hard. So I always say you have to believe in the change. You can't make the change because somebody told you you should. You mm-hmm. can't make the change because it's quote unquote the right thing to do. Your changes have to be aligned with who you are and what you believe and what you're passionate about, or you will not have the motivation to do the work it takes to reroute all those rivers in your head and and become the person you always knew you could be. The brain uses more energy than any other organ in the body. And so when you, you might sit at a desk all day and be exhausted while somebody else did manual labor and they're nowhere near as tired. And that's because you did nothing but challenge your cognitive functions all day long. Now that doesn't mean that's healthy or good, but I don't think we give credit to the amount of energy it takes to think and to be creative and to problem solve. And as our daily lives get more and more unpredictable and there's less and less of that ritual we need to introduce it ourselves because Mm. otherwise we're just sending our brain out in so many different directions that at some point it just kind of stalls out and then we feel overwhelmed and burnout and stress. You have given so many like great actionable tips and things to do and tweaks. This is so awesome. I love this. Didn't even know this was that people were going to get all of this out of this conversation. We started talking about environmental justice and then <laughs> ended up talking about decluttering our desk. I love this. <laughs> but it's all connected, right? It is. If you think about it, all these things we're just talking about, they happen to everybody. And yes. If I feel overwhelmed in my privileged life, what does someone who's got worries about getting food on the table and whether they're going to get evicted dealing with? Oh my God. Yeah. That's, it's a whole other ball game. And you know what? I I think I mentioned this conversation to you. I can't remember who I I recently told, but I was at a convention um, uh, years ago in Arkansas. And there was, there was somebody was talking about like health and, and people's access to health and not just like healthcare, but like even understanding like how to eat healthily. And a kid that, not a kid, a young man at the table that I was at was saying like, I don't understand this. Like, I don't understand that just because somebody's poor, they don't know that you don't eat fried food or you don't eat a bunch of carbs. Like, how does somebody not know? And I remember thinking, well, isn't it nice that you haven't had to worry about like what, where your next meal is going to come from. And with all due respect, if you don't have a lot of money, you don't really care what the carb to protein to fat ratio is, if it's going to feed you until the next meal. Like who has, if you're just worried about where your next meal is, who has the capacity to think about, is this actually healthy? And how many of us came home after a long, hard day and said, Oh my God, make dinner. You're nuts. I'm getting takeout. Yes. So why would we think that just because someone was lower income that they didn't have an exhausting day and the thought of cooking dinner was just as much of a, I just can't even moment for them. 
plus add in, they may live in a food desert. So being able to get fresh produce versus packaged foods is a challenge and fast food is cheap. It's mm-hmm. very cheap. So I'm exhausted. I've got five bucks. I'm going to McDonald's. Problem solved. Boom. And of course, there's all kinds of unintended consequences that come from making that choice. But in the moment, every single one of us would be doing that same exact thing. Yes. Heck yes. Oh my gosh. I remember I would, um, when I was like, again, in the days of $30 for the week for gas and food, um, I would, uh, I would get like a, a reimbursement for certain meals and, it, and great. Yes. I'd get reimbursed, but you still have to pay the money up front. So my go-to meal on the road when I was trying to lose weight, but I was still like broke was Wendy's chili because the protein and the fiber in the beans would keep me full. And it only cost me a dollar 49. I still remember exactly how much it costs. Cause I'm like, I can afford that. And if all I have as a, a choice and, and you have to figure, I mean, I was in Northeast Florida. There were some areas where I'm sorry, there was not a whole foods. There was not a, like a night the, you had your Chinese buffet, your American buffet, and you had McDonald's and Wendy's and that was it. So you just make the best choice you can. But that, again, the only reason I needed to make the chili choice was because I had been studying and been researching and trying to figure out how do I lose weight, even though right. I don't have access to the best food and I can't afford organic. And you most likely didn't have a huge appetite. Let's say you were a 22 year old man. You'd be Ooh. going to the buffets, right? Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> it's all you can eat. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would be, if somebody's like looking at this episode, right? Or the the thing and, and, and they see an architecture, like what architect, what would I, what I possibly gain from that? What is something that you think makes this accessible to everybody? I mean, I think you've covered a lot of it, but what do you think in this is applicable to everyone, regardless of where they come from? Well, I hope if you take nothing else away, it's that your the built environment affects you. And that you can demand better, whether it's going to a public meeting about a building that's going to be built in your community, uh, forming an action group for your local school, or talking to your boss about forming a wellness committee. Just because you may not have been trained as an architect doesn't mean you have no control over the built environment. So know that it affects you and know that you can be part of the force making the change and demanding better and do everything you can to empower yourself to be in an environment that nourishes you. Because while it might seem like you can get through the day just fine coping with whatever your present circumstances are, I guarantee you, your physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional state will be elevated when you elevate your surroundings. Amazing. How, how can people connect with you? What, what do they website and what, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. So um, if, if you do have a project you'd like to work on, um, 
you can reach me at Angela at gbbn.com. That is the architecture firm that I work with. GBBN but, as in Nancy yes. or M as in Mike? N as in Nancy. Okay. Okay. And so we do a lot of these kinds of projects in communities. So we'd be happy to work with you and do some of these salutogenic effects. But if you just want to learn more about how to be empowered as a creative person and be that advocate and live your purpose, I have a blog and a podcast. It's called Architecting. And um, you can go to architecting.com and you can um, get hooked up with some great free resources, some coaching classes, some one-on-one -on -one coaching that I offer. And I would absolutely invite you to listen to my podcast, which is also called Architecting. And you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google, pretty much every outlet. I think we're on iHeartRadio. So we'd love to have you listen and share what you think. I'm also on Instagram as Architecting Podcast. So Architecting Podcast on Instagram. Okay. Yes. Awesome. Oh my God, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I, I always love the opportunity to tell these stories and help people realize that the design matters and that yes. you have the power to make a difference as well. Oh, 100%, 100%. Wow, that's all I can say because I literally think there was something for everyone in this conversation, whether it was talking about environmental justice, social justice, creating rituals that help avoid mindless eating or decluttering your desk, improving your workspace, improving classrooms, healthcare facilities. Like, hello. What? I'm just, I'm on a high after this conversation. I don't know if you can tell. And I hope you connect with Angela. I hope you listen to her podcast. The link to her website is in the show notes. And please, by all means, check out the podcast Instagram because then you will see the link to her Instagram. And I just think she is such an awesome person for you to get to know more of. Uh, and also, if you enjoyed this episode, please write a written review on iTunes. I would be so grateful to hear from you and what you think about this episode and the podcast in general. And if you would like to contribute to our ongoing Soul Shaker series for the month of March in honor of International Women's Day, then please email me at rosanna at breakinglabelspodcast.com. My email is also in the show notes of this episode. All right, see you tomorrow.